0: Republicans and Democrats want more info from the White House on the classified documents taken from a former personal office of President Biden. It's Wednesday, January 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, the president says he was surprised to learn about the discovery.
1: I don't know
2: what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives. And we're cooperating fully.
0: Also this hour, Democrats' plan to reshuffle their presidential primary calendar is moving forward. It would get rid of New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation status. And thousands of nurses in New York City are on strike, upset with benefits, pay, and what they call chronic understaffing.
3: These work environment challenges have been predating COVID-19, and nurses have been experiencing many of these challenges for decades. Partly sunny in the 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The National Weather Service says another storm will strike northern California today. Forecasters say excessive rain on top of oversaturated ground will trigger flooding. The rain has been relentless. Businesses in the coastal town of Capitola, south of San Francisco, are cleaning up from prior storms. From member station KAZU, Jeremiah Edding has more.
5: In the dim interior of the sandbar in Capitola, co-owner Jeff Lantis sweeps up debris off the destroyed floor of his restaurant. They're still without
6: power, and the damage looks bad, but he says he's relieved. It's not a total
7: loss. Pretty much in the first few days, it looked like we lost everything.
6: He says ocean water
5: that surged beneath the restaurant warped and splintered the floorboards. Sarah Ryan, captain with the Capitola City Police, says approaching rain could dampen recovery efforts for now.
8: So we're not going to see as much recovery right in the here and the now because we are still amidst some weather activity that's a little concerning.
9: She's hopeful the worst
5: of the storms is over. For NPR News, I'm Jeremiah Edding in Santa Cruz.
8: There are
4: some flight delays reported this morning in the U.S. The Federal Aviation Administration is reporting an outage in a computer notification system. The FAA hopes to restore it shortly. President Biden is back in Washington after attending a summit of North American leaders in Mexico. NPR's Ada Peralta reports the leaders agreed to form a task force to pursue continental integration.
5: The summit was hosted by Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador, and in closing remarks, the Mexican leader, who is known for being recalcitrant, had nothing but praise for Biden. Biden, he says, has treated immigrants and Mexicans especially with humanity. You Biden, he said, is the first president in a long time not to build a border wall. López Obrador delayed in recognizing Biden after his election, but analysts say this marks a U-turn in their relationship. Ada Peralta, NPR
4: News, Mexico City. Officials in Ukraine and Russia say intense fighting continues in the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. Russian forces, supported by mercenaries, have advanced on the nearby village of Solodar. And Pierre's Alissa Nadwarny is in Kyiv. She says, if Russia seizes Solodar, this could allow Russian
10: forces to encircle the city of Bakhmut. Capturing Solodar that would allow Russia to potentially envelop Bakhmut. Um, these minor tactical advances, like we're talking block by block gains by Russia, they're significant mostly because. Russia has struggled to make any operational gains. So they're standing out because they're so rare, but it doesn't mean it's a Russian turning point. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney. This is NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Massport officials say it's unclear how the FAA computer system outage is impacting flights in and out of Logan Airport. Right now, the website FlightAware shows 39 delays in and out of Logan. The FAA says it is working to fix the issue. Lawyers for the convicted Boston Marathon bomber are trying again to get his death sentence tossed. The defense team for Zohar Tsarnaev yesterday told an appeals court that the Supreme Court failed to consider its claims that jurors lied during the selection process. Nancy Gertner is a retired federal judge who consults on the case. She says the jury foreperson made extensive comments about Tsarnaev on social media. The lawyers found out that she had not disclosed her Facebook presence and had not disclosed the fact that she'd been locked down before the jury was sworn. All the judge had to do was to bring her back and inquire, and he didn't. There are similar claims about a second juror. Federal prosecutors say the trial judge in the original case did nothing wrong in his handling of jury selection. A special prosecutor says two MBTA police officers should not face criminal charges in an alleged cover-up. One officer is accused of pulling a gun on an Hispanic black man in 2021 during a traffic argument. That officer was then accused of asking another MBTA officer to pull the man over so he could write a ticket. One officer was fired over the incident. The other resigned. The alleged victim tells the Boston Globe he's upset about the prosecutor's decision. The Boston City Council will hold its first meeting of the new year today. Council President Ed Flynn is asking his fellow councillors to prioritize professionalism and be polite in the new year. More from WBUR's Robley.
11: Flynn says people in Boston count on local leaders to be role models. A few months ago, tempers flared in council chambers when Councillor Frank Baker accused Councillor Liz Braden of trying to dilute South Boston's voting power. Baker claimed Brayden may be doing so because she is of Northern Irish Protestant heritage. Flynn forcefully scolded Baker and Baker apologized. Emotions also ran high last year when old sexual assault allegations against Councillor Ricardo Arroyo resurfaced. Arroyo was never charged and denies assaulting anyone. Flynn temporarily stripped Arroyo of his committee chairs. The move prompted other councillors to accuse Flynn of trying to undercut the council's more progressive faction. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
0: A wide majority of Massachusetts parents do not believe their child is suffering from pandemic learning loss. Despite data that show otherwise, a new statewide survey by the Mass Inc. polling group reveals only 24 percent of parents see their children as behind a grade level. However, state standardized test scores from 2021 show dips in English scores for kids in grades three through five. It's 707.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the
0: Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. The Celtics are back in action tonight as they host the New Orleans Pelicans. In your forecast, partly sunny today and in the mid-30s, mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be around 30. Cloudy to start tomorrow with snow possible in the early morning, then rain. As temperatures rise to the mid-40s, rainy and warmer for Friday. It's 23 degrees in Boston at 7.07.
13: WBUR supporters include the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California.
15: And I'm Leila Falded in Washington, D.C. President Biden and his predecessor now have something in common. Biden and Donald Trump are both facing allegations that they mishandled classified documents.
14: But how are these cases different, and how are news outlets covering this latest revelation?
12: CBS News has learned the Department of Justice is reviewing classified Obama-Biden records.
16: Several classified documents from his time as VP under the Obama administration.
6: The issue here is much more about politics than about law.
15: Now, we asked NPR media correspondent David Fokenflick to help us unpack the coverage of the story, and he joins us now. Good morning, David. Good morning, Layla. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. How did this story break and how was it presented?
17: Well, let's think about this for a moment. There there really haven't been a ton of scandals during the Biden presidency affecting True. Joe Biden himself beyond his troubled son Hunter. So, consider it a little bit of a media test case. CBS broke it as we just heard. Biden's attorney's uh, disclosed uh, through the White House about a dozen documents were found with classified markings at this uh, university center in Washington where the former vice president was before he became president, and they formed the National Archive and cooperating with the Justice Department. It's being reviewed by a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Chicago. That gets disclosed and then bursts out everywhere. A new scandal to cover after days of coverage of Republican dysfunction on Capitol Hill.
15: And how has it been covered? How did different media outlets cover this story?
17: Well, I think uh, you saw a bunch of coverage of the initial disclosure, which was as factual as we knew. Very limited set of facts so far. A lot of questions Mm -hmm. remain. And then you saw a burst of speculation. You saw places like Punchbowl News, which focuses on Capitol Hill and Washington politics, portraying it as giving the Republicans a win because they could beat up the president over it. You know, you think of a place that's often critical of the president. Fox gave it a lot of coverage Monday, to be sure. But actually, CNN far more so. There was a review late last night by uh, Media Matters, a liberal media watchdog group making that case. It, that was consistent with my review of the transcripts for shows on CNN, Fox Times, the primetime shows two times as much on C- CNN, three times as much, four times as much likely to be covering this as other issues. It suggests you know, that CNN really decided, yes, to provide a lot of context, but also to go all in. I must say that coverage became calmer and more contextualized from Monday evening over the course of the day Tuesday analyses being brought on the air involving a lot of former government officials.
15: I think there's been a tendency to want to compare the Trump classified document scandal and what Biden is facing now. But this isn't an apples to apples comparison, right?
17: It's not apples to apples i mean let's be really clear trump's uh, lawyer and his lawyers didn't disclose they had these things they said things that weren't true uh, to the national archives and to uh, to lawyers for the government they then fought returned of documents. It turned out there were hundreds of documents bearing markings of uh, classified designations and that these were also, in some cases, documents with nuclear secrets. Uh, not the case uh, uh, f- for in the Biden thing as far as we know. You know, look, there was a time where Bill Clinton's former National Security Advisor uh, slipped out documents out of the National Archive in the, in the George W. Bush years in his clothing. He was criminally charged. So far, that's not the case here. Mm-hmm. Journalists do a disservice if they equate things that aren't the same but yet let's remember this is consequential and has to be covered
15: npr media correspondent david fokenflick thanks so much for your time you bet okay we just heard about how the media covered the discovery of classified documents at the penn biden center but what are the ethical and legal implications for that we're turning to richard painter via skype he was the chief ethics lawyer of the white house under president george w bush good morning good morning so if you put your chief ethics lawyer cap on what are you looking for going forward
7: well first it's critically important uh, that we treat uh, classified information appropriately which means uh, keeping it in a secure information facility a skiff and only uh, have access uh, uh, to people who have the security clearance and uh, sloppy handling of classified information is a very serious matter. Uh, this is something that I reiterated in 2005 to the White House staff after we had a scandal where someone intentionally uh, leaked the name of CIA agent Valerie Plame in order to retaliate yeah. against her husband, but sloppy handling of a uh, classified information uh, is very, very serious. Now, that being said, Uh, that is not uh, going to result in criminal charges simply if someone was sloppy, whether it's Hillary Clinton's email server or what happened here. On the other hand, if someone lies about having classified documents uh, and uh, refuses to turn them over, uh, what happened to Mar-a-Lago? That is going to result in an FBI raid, uh, and I'm surprised the FBI didn't raid more of Donald Trump's properties in light of what happened there. So... There, there's a clear distinction between the criminal on the one hand and the incredibly sloppy uh, handling of classified information that, that happened here, where somebody packed up boxes in the vice president's office and shipped them over to uh, the Penn-Biden Center. Uh, and there are a b- bunch of other controversies surrounding the Penn-Biden Center. And then um, they're unrelated, I'd emphasize. Uh, you know. But this is sloppy to, uh, to have done that. Whoever so in your view, off, in
15: this case, this is carelessness rather than criminal in what you're seeing so far
7: yes very very careless uh, i mean whoever is packing the boxes uh, you know packing up the offices of the vice president of the united states uh, should be a, a probably a lawyer from the council's office who can review documents because it's not just classified documents other uh, government records originals cannot be removed from the premises if it's a photocopy of a non-classified document or if on the other hand it's a, uh, a You know, that's okay, but if it's classified or it's an original of any document, you can't take it out of the premises.
15: So what should have been done to ensure that the then former Vice President Biden didn't have classified documents among his files?
7: Well, there should have been a review of these files first before they left the the vice president's uh, office. Uh, They should have gone through everything and make absolutely sure there was no classified documents in there. Classified documents have a cover on them. Uh, clearly indicating uh, that there is a a classified document inside. And so if someone had bothered to look, uh, they would have seen that. When the documents arrived at his uh, new office, they also should have been reviewed as well uh, to uh, ascertain that they only had uh, documents uh, that the uh, then former vice president had a right to uh, retain.
15: So clearly, these procedures that you're describing, at least in this case, weren't followed. Does President Biden then bear responsibility?
7: Well, I mean, ultimately, we do have responsibility for the uh, uh, for the work of our staff, and uh, whether it's the Vice President's office or, on the other hand, the people over at the Penn Biden Center, who also should have uh, uh, made sure that they only had that which they were entitled to have, uh, and the 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 president does bear responsibility. The boss does. Now, that does not mean it's criminal responsibility. And once again, he did not refuse to turn over the documents. His, the, uh, his lawyers and the president uh, reported this uh, uh, when they found the documents. Uh, this is very different than the situation we had down in Mar-a-Lago.
15: Why doesn't the National Archives seem to know when these sensitive documents go missing? I mean, in this case, it appears they only knew when Biden's lawyers told them. Why is that?
7: Well, this is a serious problem. We are not keeping track of uh, of classified information uh, as we should be uh, because we should know know, how many copies there are of classified documents, where they are. And we shouldn't just have copies of classified documents floating around all over the place.
15: Richard Painter is a former chief White House ethics lawyer. Last year, the former Republican ran as a Democrat in a U.S. House race in Minnesota. Thank you so much.
7: Well, thank you.
14: The summit of North American leaders has come to an end in Mexico. It was a meeting between the leaders of Mexico, the U.S. and Canada, but all eyes were on President Biden and his Mexican counterpart, whose initial meetings were awkward, to say the least. NPR's Eder Peralta reports. Right before
5: their bilateral talk on Monday, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador showered President Biden with compliments and then said that Biden could make Simón Bolívar's dream of a united continent a reality. President Biden, you have the key to better the relationships between all of the countries on the American continent. Obrador styles himself a leftist, so inviting an American president into the fraternity of revolutionary Latin American leaders should have been a compliment. But Biden instead insisted the U.S. has responsibilities beyond the Western Hemisphere.
18: It's in uh, Central Europe, it's in Asia, it's in
5: the
14: Middle East, it's in Africa, it's in West Asia.
5: To Rafael Fernández de Castro, who studies U.S.-Mexico relations at UC Davis, Biden wanted to distance himself from Simón Bolívar, a figure used by authoritarian regimes in Venezuela. But what López Obrador was doing, he says, was trying to bring the U.S. closer to Latin America. It backfired, but Fernández de Castro says ultimately the Mexican president chose the benefits of siding with North America. He feels Latin America For he understand that Mexico is in the economic sphere of North America? Indeed, the big takeaway from this conference was the creation of a task force to bolster nearshoring, or the production of everything from computer chips to vehicles in the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, in order to cut dependence from China. By the time the final press conference came around, López Obrador had nothing but praise for President Biden. Unlike others, he said, Biden has been humane with Mexicans and migrants. You are the first U.S. president in a long time not to build a single meter of border wall. Fernandez de Castro, the professor, says the tone was surprising for a president known for his recalcitrance and who delayed recognizing Biden after his electoral win. The personal relationship of Biden and López Obrador is signaling, going a full circle. What was once distant, he says, is now warm and amicable. Pralta in Pierre News, Mexico City.
14: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, an economic crisis in Syria has a country mired in conflict at what some say is a breaking point. It's 719.
19: I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into
13: the programs you love.
0: Just go to WBUR.org.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel & Hyden Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's Heroic Symphony, January 20th and 22nd at Symphony Hall, handlonheiden.org, and Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer,
20: wi.mit.edu slash events. Planet Earth. As of late last year, human population 8 billion. And by the end of the century, it's expected to top 10 billion.
21: For me, nine and then 10 billion is not going to very much change my life. But there are places in the world, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, another billion will make people's lives potentially worse.
20: That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: A high of only 36 today under partly sunny skies. Cloudy tonight with a low of 30. Tomorrow a good chance of snow in the early morning. Then rain, followed by clouds. The high will be near 42. Right now it's 23 degrees in Boston. Foodies are going to love two upcoming events at WBUR City Space. On January 30th, join us for a conversation with Boston chef and restaurant owner Tiffany Faison. Then on February 6th, we hear from James Beard award-winning chef Ming Tsai. Both will talk about their food journeys and share a bite to eat. Get tickets at wbrorg events. It's 721.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized program based in psychology to help people understand their motivations, change their habits, and lead healthier lives. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M.com. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
15: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin.
14: And I'm Dwayne Brown. In Syria, fighting in the civil war has become less frequent, and the regime of President Bashar Assad has solidified its hold on much of the country. But even in places controlled by the government, Syrians are struggling with soaring prices, a currency collapse, and fuel shortages. NPR's Ruth Sherlock spoke with a Syrian visiting Lebanon about how even the basics are hard to get.
22: Sitting in an old armchair outside the apartment block in Lebanon's capital Beirut, where he now sometimes stays, this Syrian man tells me, through an interpreter, about life now in his hometown of Sueda in Syria.
20: The line to get a bag of bread is three or four hours.
22: He says constant power cuts mean that dairy and meat products are often rotten.
20: Most shops, they don't have enough diesel to run their generators
23: to have their fridges running correctly all the time.
22: The Syrian man asks that we don't use his name because he fears that the Syrian regime, still a brutal dictatorship, might arrest him for speaking about Syria's problems with foreign media. Most of his family has fled Syria. He still goes back to Sweda to check on his property there. He says, without power, classrooms are too cold for children to stay in school. Hospitals are so short of supplies that they sometimes ask the relatives of patients to find their own medications. And the poverty is extreme. He tells me of friends and neighbours who managed to keep their apartments through more than a decade of war. And now uh,
23: they're homeless, and they live in the streets, and they're eating from the garbage. The amount of need that is there is beyond uh, what people can help on an individual basis. And if you want to help everyone you want to help, then you will become like them. You will not be able to afford your own life.
22: The United Nations says more than 15 million Syrians, out of the total population of around 22 million, are in need of humanitarian aid. Samah Hadid from the Norwegian Refugee Council says this is more than at any other point during the conflict.
21: People have to skip meals on a daily basis. They're skipping urgent medical procedures. They can't afford medicine. They have to send their children to work instead of school in order just to get food on the table. Countless parents have told us time and time again they lie awake at night deeply worrying about how they're going to be able to purchase food the next day.
22: So why are things so bad now? Obviously you have the the impact of the war, the combination of
5: destruction, migration, you know, breakdown of institutions and so on and so
22: forth. Jihad Yaziji, the editor-in-chief of the Syria Report, an online bulletin focused on Syria's economy, says the reasons are complex. The collapse of the banking sector in neighboring Lebanon in 2019 froze billions of dollars of Syrian deposits. Then there are the biting Western sanctions often cited by Syrian leaders and the impact of global inflation caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine. Corruption has made things worse. In some ways, the government has acknowledged the difficulties. It told workers they can save fuel by not coming to their offices on some days last month. The severe fuel shortage, Yaziji says, is partly because Iran, a long-time ally of the Syrian regime, is now limiting the supply of oil that Damascus depends on. Yaziji says the reason for this may be political.
5: So the most likely explanation is the Iranians using their oil supplies as a means if you want to extract some concessions from the Syrian regime on a number of issues.
22: He says Iran, which fought with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in the war, wants Damascus to give it more economic advantages in Syria, like more access to phosphate mines. And Iran is concerned about Syria rebuilding ties with regional countries like Turkey and the United Arab Emirates. While all these complex politics unfold, however, it is Syrian citizens who, having already survived more than a decade of war, are left to suffer. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut.
14: Of all the water on Earth, only about 2.5% is fresh water, and it's also vanishing fast due to climate change.
15: But researchers at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign say climate change is also creating fresh water in the form of ocean
5: vapor. And if we could tap into that resource, we could supply fresh water
14: without the need to desalinate. Praveen Kumar is a professor who specializes in climate-driven changes in the water cycle. Kumar says existing methods to meet fresh water demands, like seeding clouds to make rain or removing salt from seawater, are inadequate and unsustainable.
15: So as global temperatures keep rising, his research team set out to find a long-term solution.
5: Warmer air holds more moisture. We're also looking at warming of the ocean surfaces. And as a result, evaporation will increase. So essentially, more
14: evaporation and more moisture in the air, and therefore more water. Now, the study focused on 14 water-stressed cities around the world, the objective to See whether it would be feasible to capture ocean vapor and turn it into fresh water. What we envision for this work is a capture surface. So
5: if you think about putting something, say, in the ocean west of Los Angeles, uh, with about 9 to 10 such structures, meeting the entire drinking needs of the Los Angeles population.
15: The researchers say what they need next is some kind of apparatus to make this happen.
5: It is now feasible to approach it
14: from an infrastructure and a large-scale investment perspective and solve the problem. Kumar says capturing moisture from over the oceans could provide a sustainable freshwater supply and solve one of the planet's great challenges. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, what will the latest numbers from the government tell us about the pace of inflation? Are interest hikes by the Federal Reserve paying off? Listen to NPR on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or wherever you are. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, after years of staffing challenges and pandemic conditions, thousands of nurses are on strike at two New York City hospitals. And what the night sky has in store for us in 2023. It's 729. We're
4: funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe
6: live from npr news in washington i'm dave mattingly president biden says he was surprised to learn classified documents were found at an office he once used in washington
14: I was briefed about this
2: discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office, but I don't know what's in the documents. My lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes, they've turned over the boxes to the archives and we're cooperating fully.
6: The president was speaking yesterday in Mexico City where he was attending a summit. The records were discovered at the Penn Biden Center in early November. The chairman of the House Oversight Committee is asking the White House Counsel's Office for copies of the documents. California's governor says stormy weather is expected to continue in his state for at least another week. NPR's Nathan Rott is outside Los Angeles
24: there's been widespread flooding along some parts of the coast there were some levee failures in inland Uh, san francisco was seeing pea-sized hail for a while yesterday and this whole storm system isn't over as we heard from the governor Uh, mike anderson the state climatologist said in a press conference yesterday there's still uncertainty about how severe the upcoming
6: storms later this week and weekend will be the recent series of storms in california is blamed for at least 17 deaths this is npr news
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shenoy. It's a rough morning for anyone flying in and out of of Logan Airport. The FAA is dealing with a nationwide computer problem. The agency says it's told all airlines to stop all domestic departures until 9 a.m. to make sure the problem is fixed. The website FlightAware says there are now 39 flights delayed at Logan Airport, and that number is expected to rise. Cambridge is cracking down on deceptive advertising by so-called crisis pregnancy centers. This week, the Cambridge City Council unanimously passed an ordinance to create a series of fines. Crisis pregnancy centers provide some resources for pregnant people, but don't provide or refer for abortions and often dissuade people from getting them. Council member Patty Nolan supported the measure. If you're giving full, accurate information to people who are seeking
12: services, then this, um, this ordinance will not apply to you at all. It really is specifically about ensuring that medical information is appropriately delivered.
0: Opponents of the measure say it's redundant because the state already regulates deceptive advertising. Previously, the council considered banning the centers altogether, but the city's solicitor said that could invite a legal challenge. A new law in Massachusetts authorizes the town of Stockbridge to give 18th-century documents to the Stockbridge-Munsee Mohicans. Nancy Cohn reports the town wants to hold a ceremony to give documents to the tribe, which moved to Wisconsin after the U.S. government took its land. A few years ago, the facilities manager in Stockbridge discovered the documents tucked among other papers in the Old Town Hall. Historian Rick Wilcox says it's an incredible find about efforts by tribal leaders to regain control of land distribution around 1780.
13: This document was a request from the members of the leadership to call a meeting in order to undo the relationship they had with two English colonists who were supposed to be helping with the distribution
12: of land, but in essence were stealing it. Tribal leaders said getting records like this is rare, and they hope others will return documents so the tribe can
4: tell
0: its story in its own voice. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. It's 733.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp family run for 57 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills. Putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com
0: The Celtics will go for their fourth win in a row tonight. They'll play at the New Orleans Pelicans at the Garden. The Red Sox today are expected to make official their long-term deal with third baseman Raphael Devers. Multiple reports last week said the the team signed Devers to a 10-year $313 million extension. That's the biggest contract in team history. In your forecast partly cloudy today with temperatures rising to the mid 30s. It'll still be cloudy tonight as those fall to the low 20s. Tomorrow snow until about mid morning, then rain followed by clouds will top out in the low 40s. Right now it's 22 degrees in Boston at
12: 7:34. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI. To help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies, dataiku.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide, at easycater.com.
15: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington,
14: D.C. And I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. More than 7,000 nurses are striking for a third day at two New York hospitals over a new contract. They say pay is one issue, but staffing levels are a bigger one. One striking nurse said she used to care for four patients at a time in the emergency room or ER, but that's now up to 20 on some days, and the coronavirus pandemic only worsened the nursing shortage nationwide. An aging population is also straining the health care system. The Department of Health and Human Services estimates 1 million new nurses will be needed between now and 2030. Joining us to talk about this, the shortage and solutions, is Jennifer Mensa Kennedy. She's president of the American Nurses Association. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. You know, burnout seems to be a big problem here. What are you hearing from nurses on the picket line?
3: Part of this is what's going on today is that these work. Environment challenges have been predating COVID 19. And mm. nurses have been experiencing many of these challenges for decades. And the current strain of COVID 19 and other public health emergencies have only worsened many of these existing challenges and issues.
14: And as it relates to hospitals, there are two uh, in the New York area where these nurses are striking. What seems to be their response at this point?
3: I want to note that striking is always a last resort. Sure. And the nurses really want to focus in on the safe staffing as being a, a very important issue. The American Nurses Association shares the frustration with the lack of sustainable solutions to address the staffing concerns, workplace violent incidents, and other unchecked work environment challenges. And so the actions being taken in New York reflect the experiences and feelings many nurses nationwide.
14: You know, I was reading a uh, comment from one nurse, uh, chief nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital, She said something like, this is a a national workforce crisis.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We definitely need more nurses, but what we've found for for decades of research and programs is that when we have really good work environments for nurses, where nurses are valued, nurses are listened to, Mm -hmm. and nurses can provide quality, safe care. Those hospitals, those organizations don't experience the shortages that other hospitals do. There are solutions that organizations can put in place to attract nurses and retain nurses. And nurses will go to those organizations where they feel valued and they feel like at the end of the day, at the end of the shift, that they were able to provide good quality care to people.
14: Remind us how we got to this point and why aren't there enough nurses?
3: Great question, and we've you know, experienced shortages of nurses um, historically for you know many decades. And right now, we have an aging population. We've got the baby boomers aging. We have you know many choices for nurses for women to go into other professions. And we have a lack of faculty who are able to, you know, bring those nursing students in. We had many nurses who, you know, many people who wanted to go into nursing school, for instance, who were just unable to get enrolled into the nursing school because there's just not enough spaces.
14: But faculty, there's an issue of pay there too, right?
3: Absolutely. Oftentimes, new graduate nurses will make more than their faculty mm. who are teaching them. Wow. So we have to address issues like that. How, why would someone want to come and teach if their new graduate nurses are going to make more than them right out of school?
14: How do we concretely address the, the short and long-term issues here?
3: I mean, the American Nurses Association, you know, shares the nurses' frustration with a lack of solutions. And, you know, we've really worked together with decision makers and organizations and nationally to say, you know, we really do need to work through and address safe staffing issues. We need to look at how we can address getting more nurses to be faculty and address the faculty shortage. And we also need to look at the work environment and encourage nurses to stay nurses and not to leave the profession. And we want nurses to be nurses for their entire career. So those are the three areas I think we could really focus in on in order to make sustainable change.
14: My grandmother was a nurse into her 80s, so it is definitely a, a big need to this, even to this day, right?
3: Nurses become nurses because they want to take care of people. That's what we feel we can leave at the end of our shift. Knowing we helped someone, there's no better feeling.
14: Jennifer Mensick-Kennedy is president of the American Nurses Association. Thank you so much for your time today.
3: Thank you.
15: Stunning meteor showers, a super blue moon, and a ring of fire eclipse. 2023 has a lot of celestial wonder in store.
14: Astronomer Jackie Faraday works at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. She says the first things to look for are what she calls naked eye planets, planets you can actually see without a telescope.
1: By January 22nd, what you'll get to see is Venus is getting particularly close to Saturn, which is super fun to see because they're bright objects. They move different than the stars. And then on March 1st, you'll see Venus has kind of closed in on Jupiter, and they're very close to each other. That's a good one to look for, the planets meeting each other in the sky.
15: In August, we can see a blue moon, which isn't blue. It just refers
1: to the second full moon in a calendar month. So this saying that, oh, it only happens once in a blue moon, but actually it's not rare at all. Blue moons happen every two and a half years.
14: A bright moon can be mesmerizing, but some of the most memorable astronomical events are easier to see when the moon is not full.
1: Anywhere that's got like a lot of light pollution, the moon still shines through. But when you want to see darker things, the moon, you want it to go away. When the moon is
15: hidden, it makes it easier to view cosmic events like meteor showers. The Perseids are due in August and the Geminids in December.
1: The meteor showers are great for just, like, equitable observing because all you really need is open sky. But even in cities, you can find yourself a clearing somewhere. You can find yourself on a rooftop, maybe. You can find yourself in the middle of a park. Coming up in the fall, there will also be a partial solar eclipse. We also call that the ring of fire eclipse because... While the moon doesn't fully cover the sun, it leaves this ring around where the moon would be that if you look at it, it looks super cool.
14: (laughs) And yeah, for a total solar eclipse, you'll have to wait until next year. NASA already has a countdown going for the big day, April 8th, 2024. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns,
18: burns, the ring of fire, the ring of fire.
14: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoit in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, the mayor of Denver wants to close shelters that the city opened in the last month to house more than 4,000 migrants. And in our next hour, the investigation into the riot in Brazil's capital continues. The focus is turning to those who helped the rioters enter buildings. In your forecast, a mix of sun and clouds today with temperatures rising to the mid-30s. Cloudy tonight, falling to around 30. In the early hours of tomorrow morning, snow is possible, followed by rain and clouds. In the evening, we may see fog and high winds. The high temperature is in the low 40s. It's 23 degrees right now in Boston at 743. We're
13: funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com.
0: Now in business news, the head of Boston-based cybersecurity firm Rapid7 is now also the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston's board of directors. Corey Thomas was one of several people appointed to the board for the new year. That group also includes the CEO of Mass Mutual and the chairman of State Street. The British pharmaceutical giant GSK is undergoing a massive expansion in Cambridge. The Boston Globe reports the company will increase the size of its footprint in the Alewife neighborhood from 40,000 square feet to 200,000 by next year. Most of that will be new lab space. And it's a pairing of two very New England traditions. Duncan is the new title sponsor of the men's Beanpot. That's the historic college hockey tournament held each winter between BU, BC, Harvard, and Northeastern. Financial details were not released. This year's Bean Beanpot semifinals will be held February 6th at the Garden. It's 745.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition
15: from NPR News. I'm Layla Falded.
14: And I'm Dwayne Brown. More than 4,000 migrants who recently crossed into the U.S. from Mexico have arrived in Denver over the last month, prompting the city to declare a state of emergency. It converted two city recreation centers into temporary shelters. And Denver's mayor now wants to close those shelters, but it's not clear where the migrants can go. Colorado Public Radio's Kevin Beatty has more.
19: Denver City employee Lisa Gibbs is in charge of the shelter in West Denver. It's busy.
1: We'll get walk-ups all day. We are close to capacity today.
19: Denver started converting rec centers and another city building to temporary spaces for migrants when Denver's regular homeless shelters became inundated in December. Gibbs and her colleagues stepped away from the regular city jobs and have been pulling 12-hour shifts. People like Kevin, who's from Venezuela, are appreciative. He declined to say his last name, worrying identifying himself could compromise his asylum claim. I feel safe thanks to the support of the people who are having us here, he says. I arrived here without clothes, with nothing, and here they've given me clothes, food, where to stay when I go to my destination. I'm barely 22 years old, and I want to get my papers out and do things perfectly, if God allows me. City employees are really proud to give people a soft landing here, but it's cost Denver more than a million dollars so far. Mayor Michael Hancock has been pleading with nonprofit and faith organizations to help. He expects migrants will keep coming for months. Last week, the state tried to solve Denver's problem by chartering buses to take migrants where they want to go out of state. Selena Reyes has been helping book those trips.
1: I would say that the majority of our guests are traveling outside of Denver, uh, New York, Chicago, and Florida as of right now.
19: Officials won't say how many buses they chartered, but on Saturday, New York Mayor Eric Adams and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot sent a joint letter respectfully demanding they stop. Jared Polis, Colorado's Democratic governor, stopped chartering buses in response, but said, quote, We will not prevent anyone who wants to leave from going to their preferred destination, and migrants are still being offered tickets out of state on regular commercial buses. Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock says he gets it.
5: I probably would have responded exactly how Mayor Lightfoot responded. We're just not equipped for this sort of thing. And and it's a result of the inactivity and, and lack of leadership by the federal government.
19: Hancock says Denver's rec centers need to go back to being rec centers and not migrant shelters. He's hopeful the new policy President Biden announced last week will help. It aims to reduce migrant numbers by quickly expelling migrants from Nicaragua, Cuba and Haiti who enter the U.S. via
5: Mexico.
18: The administration is showing leadership and and recognizing the
25: undue burden
5: on cities and states with the uh, this, this surge that has occurred here.
25: Trabajo es work.
19: Back in the shelter, a city employee helps people with some basic English. Many people here made a dangerous trek from Venezuela to escape violence and poverty. They're trying to find a better life. Emilia Erieta has heard a lot of their stories.
1: People are not just making this decision because it seems like something to do, right? It's a, a life or death situation for a lot of people.
19: She said word has spread that Denver is a welcoming place to land, even if just for a little while.
1: We've seen a lot of people here who are who are telling us things like, oh, I texted my cousin or I'm part of a WhatsApp group that told me to come here. And the word is getting out that Denver seems to be the place that people are now coming.
19: Migrant arrivals in the city have dropped by about half from 200 or more a day. But the city is still sheltering more than 1,000 a night. And no one knows how long the surge that started last month will continue. Denver is negotiating with the local Catholic Archdiocese to shelter migrants so its rec centers can go back to hosting workouts and basketball games. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beatty in Denver.
14: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another Hour of Warning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tisiana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tisiana. Happy Hump Day.
12: Happy Hump Day, Rupa. I love this. This is NPR News. I feel like we should now go. This is Rupa
0: and TC. I don't know I can get that low. I don't know <laughs> I can I get that either. low. Yeah. So listen, we are gonna talk about
12: youth mentoring today on Radio Boston. So um I'm sure people are aware that youth mentoring is a is a thing. Uh, it's an important way to help with social skills, college preparedness. It is much bigger than I think most people know. So according to Boston.gov, more than three hundred and fifty youth mentoring programs across the Commonwealth. So wow. it's a, it's a really important strategy, struggling to get enough mentors and struggling to get enough bilingual mentors. So we're going to speak with a bilingual mentor about that experience. And then we're going to go to another organization where former mayoral candidate Anissa Saiby-George is now re- running a mentoring program. We'll talk with her about Very
0: that. Very interesting. I'm glad you're checking in with her. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, for That's Radio Boston Today at 11. It's 7.50.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com.
9: I'm Scott Tong. The holidays are over. Plum pudding, holiday cookies, sweet potato pie. Now it's time to knuckle down and try to eat a little lighter, at least for me. Here now, resident chef Kathy Guns joins us for some light vegetable-forward dishes for January. Next time on Here and Now, today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown.
15: And I'm Leila Faudel. Democrats are trying to revamp their presidential primary calendar. President Biden's recommendation to give the number one spot to South Carolina was approved by a Democratic National Committee panel. But the plan faces resistance from Iowa and New Hampshire. NPR's Asma Khalid, Domenico Montanaro,
8: and Barbara Sprunt take us through some of the challenges. If we zoom back a little bit on why there's a lot of outrage coming out of these states, why the senators of New Hampshire have been so um, vocally opposed to the changes, generations of voters in New Hampshire and Iowa view this like their political birthright. You know, they take this job of vetting presidential hopefuls very seriously. Uh, and they relish that they get to kind of kick the tires of who's going to be, you know, the the nominee for the, the parties. Uh, they take it seriously. And um, I think when we talk about why there's been such a reaction from these states, that's an important element to consider as well.
26: Gosh, so poor Iowans, because uh, it does not appear that they are going to be going first in this future nominating calendar, the Democratic (laughs) Um, So so let's talk about that. At the end of last year, the Democrats rolled out their plans for this new nominating process that put the state of South Carolina first. And, you know, my understanding from the reporting that you all have done is that that decision did not go
8: over well with all Democrats. That that's an understatement. Yes. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, the rules and bylaws committee of the DNC met in December, as you said, they voted on a new slate of states to go in that early nominating window, South Carolina being first, and then they put uh, New Hampshire, which has traditionally been the first primary in the nation, uh, second in tr- uh, on the same date as Nevada. And then they elevated Georgia and Michigan so that their primaries would also be included in that early window. Mm-hmm. That means New Hampshire wasn't happy because it wasn't the first primary in the nation anymore. Uh, and it means that I wasn't happy because it's not even in the first uh, slate of <laughs> early states at all. Um, and Uh, I was in that room. Uh, I would say there was polite tension in the room, but you saw a lot more uh, open revolt on Twitter. And, uh, you know, New Hampshire basically said, this is cute. Thanks for your opinion, but we're still going to go first. We have uh, a law on the books, a state law on the books that says we get to go first. And we plan on doing that anyway. Thanks for sharing your opinion, Mm -hmm. but we're going to do what we're going to do.
16: Well, what's difficult about that is that the Democratic National Committee obviously controls the party process. And they can penalize states with, uh, you know, cutting the number of delegates, for example, to the conventions, which they've done in the past. So they have some uh, track record of following through on Florida and Michigan, for example, in 2008, when they tried to jump the line. Uh, So they're really cautious about that. You know, for the most part, most Democrats in the DNC and otherwise are in favor of this switch. Uh, It passed Through the Rules and Bylaws Committee uh, meeting, Uh, there was a deadline of January 5th last week where the five states that they decided to move up had to all submit you know, statements saying that they were gonna be ready and able to hold primaries, not just on those dates, but also to be able to do things like expand voting access, like you know, expanding absentee voting. That's become a real hang up for states with Republican governors and legislatures like Georgia and New Hampshire.
26: So Dominico, I wanna ask you though a quick follow-up about South Carolina itself going first, because, you know, as Barbara was saying, the decision got kind of slammed in some quarters, at least that's what I saw in some of the public conversation that spilled over. Uh, Is it kind of a done deal that South Carolina is going to go first, uh, despite some of this criticism?
16: Well, some of the criticism really centered around the fact that South Carolina was a state that really propelled uh, President Biden, now President Biden, uh, to the nomination. And he's the one who pushed for South Carolina to go first. So a lot of people see that as a bit of political payback, you know, and uh, didn't like the optics of that. But what Democratic strategists tell me is that there's almost no way that Biden will be derailed anyway. So it doesn't particularly matter which states and that, you know, he has his prerogative to go this direction. But I did speak with Fez Shakir, who is uh, who was Bernie Sanders campaign manager in 2020 and is a voting DNC member. South Carolina has no business going first uh, for a variety of reasons. you know, it, it is a heavily anti union state, heavily opposed to democratic values. You look at their war on women, you look at the very conservative nature of the culture of, of that place. Yeah, the basic idea from him is that the states that go first should be the most competitive states in the general election so that Democrats can try to win over those voters and uh, win in general
8: elections. To that point, Domenico, it was really interesting because, you know, we talk about the process of the DNC changing the slate of states, but I mean, this was a long process. It didn't just happen in December. States were making pitches over the last year to the committee about, you know, why they deserved to go first. And a lot of states seemed to feel blindsided when the actual decision came out for that very reason that you alluded to about South Carolina's competitiveness, because from jump, the bylaws committee had said that one of the factors they were looking for when they would pick this new set of states is who's competitive in the general election, in addition to, you know, diversity and um, voter access. And, you know, South Carolina is not uh, what we think of when we think of a state that's competitive in the general.
26: I guess what I'm hearing from supporters of the decision to put South Carolina first is, well, it's a fairly small state. It's a state that candidates and campaigns could travel across, and they don't have to have particularly well-endowed campaigns to, to make their pitch in South Carolina, as opposed to a state like Michigan or Georgia that's just much more expensive to campaign in.
16: Well, there's also a little bit of track record. You know, South Carolina was moved into the first four state windows um, and has been doing this since 2008, where candidates have now gotten kind of used to how to campaign in the state. Uh, you're right that retail politicking is uh, also potentially possible there um, because it's smaller. But you know, the real elephant in the room here is that 60 plus percent of the primary electorate in South Carolina it, are black voters. And that's a big reason for why Democrats feel like uh, this this state should go first. It's been there before. And they feel like that, you know, this is a way for Democrats to really appeal to black voters, which is a voting bloc that is one of the most, if not the most strongly Democratic group. And anybody who's going to win the nomination is going to need black voters on their side.
15: NPR's Domenico Montanaro, Asma Khalid, and Barbara Sprunt. For more, you can find the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadil.
14: And I'm Dwayne Brown.
0: Partly cloudy skies today in the mid-30s, still cloudy tonight in the low 30s. Right now, it's 23 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org.
26: Senior Business Reporter, Yasmin Amer. This is 90.9
0: WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden says he was surprised to learn of classified documents left at a former office and is cooperating fully in a review of how they got there. It's Wednesday, January 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up, Brazilian officials say the riot at the country's capital was planned publicly online, reminding many of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol.
27: You know, in many cases, they were organizing basically in plain sight. There were offers of free
0: transportation by bus, free food. Also this hour, the death toll from torrential floods in Southern California has reached at least 17 people. And rising costs have Americans using their credit cards more, just as the cost of that debt is at near-record highs.
28: Your minimum payment might only change by a few bucks a month, but the problem
11: is when you drag it out, that's where you really feel it.
0: Partly sunny and mid-30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There are significant delays in the nation's air travel this morning. The Federal Aviation Administration has called for a national ground stop for all airlines. That's because of a glitch with one of its computer systems that monitors flight safety. The FAA ground stop is expected to last for at least one more hour. President Biden says he was surprised to learn that classified documents were discovered at a private office he once used in Washington. NPR's Giles Snyder says the records were found at the Penn-Biden Center in early November.
2: President Biden was asked about the situation while in Mexico City, where he's been meeting with the leaders of Mexico and Canada. He told reporters that he was surprised when he was briefed about their discovery, that the documents have been turned over to the National Archives, and that the White House is cooperating
4: fully. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. The U.S. and Japan are holding security talks today at the State Department. As NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports, the meetings come amid growing challenges from China and Russia.
29: The State Department says there is, as one official puts it, tremendous convergence of views between the U.S. and Japan on the priorities and goals for the region. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will meet their Japanese counterparts to coordinate responses to Russia's war in Ukraine, China's military advances, and North Korea's repeated missile launches. They're expected to announce new defense cooperation. The 2-plus-2 meeting comes ahead of a visit to the White House later this week by Japan's Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
4: The head of a Russian mercenary group says his forces, loyal to the Kremlin, now control the town of Soledar in East Ukraine after months of fighting. The fall of the town would mark Russia's first battlefield victory in months. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow.
6: In a post to social media, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the founder of the Russian mercenary force the Wagner Group, claimed his men had now seized Solodar, a small mining town where Prigozhin also acknowledged a cauldron of fighting persisted. Ukraine disputed Prigozhin's statements as propaganda, and Russia's defense ministry has not commented on the offensive. Yet Prigozhin has emerged as a vocal critic of the Russian military command in what some analysts argue is a naked attempt to secure additional government contracts and political influence from the Kremlin. Control of Solodar could allow Russia to cut off Ukrainian supply lines to nearby Bakhmut, another fiercely contested city seen as central to Russia's efforts to control East Ukraine. Charles Mains NPR News, Moscow.
4: Authorities in Brazil have ordered the arrest of the former head of police for the capital, Priscilla Anderson Torres had been fired after riots last Sunday at major government offices. Brazilian authorities allege he ignored intelligence that thousands of people were massing in the capital. You're listening to NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. That FAA computer problem is affecting dozens of flights here in Boston. The website FlightAware reports 68 departures and arrivals at Logan Airport are impacted. That number has doubled in the last hour. Departures won't resume until at least 9 a.m. The defense team for convicted Boston Marathon bomber Dzhokhar Tsarnaev wants a federal appeals court to toss his death sentence over juror misconduct claims. Tsarnaev's defense told an appeals court yesterday that the Supreme Court failed to consider its claims that jurors lied during jury selection questioning. The event says two jurors claimed they hadn't had online interactions about the case, but both had. WBUR legal analyst and retired federal judge Nancy Gertner consults on the case and says the claims are a very good argument.
12: The system runs on judges asking questions of jurors
0: to find out if they're impartial, and it runs on jurors being candid. That has become more difficult in general in a post-social media world, but at least you want the jurors to try. Federal prosecutors say the trial judge in the original case did nothing wrong in his handling of jury selection. Governor Maura Healey calls climate change the issue of our time and says she wants Massachusetts to lead the way in fighting it. She made those comments yesterday during a roundtable discussion on the issue with members of her administration. Economic Development Security Yvonne Howe says a move toward sustainability will also lead to job growth.
20: It's not only the right thing to do for the for the, for our state and the country and the world to solve these problems but also there's going to be a lot of opportunities created, a lot of jobs, a lot of new companies, a whole new set of industries. And so this is a super exciting area.
0: Howe added that investments in sustainability should benefit the whole state, not just Boston, Healy has proposed a statewide climate corridor incorporating research, innovation, and technology. State gambling regulators are paying close attention to the role celebrities will play in Massachusetts' new sports betting program. WPR's Rob Lane reports.
11: The state gaming commission grilled former Disney Channel star Jake Paul yesterday on how he plans to market a betting app he co-founded. Commissioner Eileen O'Brien is worried Paul could use his fame to push underage people into gambling.
12: I have a lot of concerns about the social media audience and sort of the priming them to then jump into this and follow somebody when they hit 21.
11: O'Brien says her concerns about Paul's app are similar to those she had about another applicant. That's an apparent reference to Penn Interactive, the gaming company affiliated with Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy. Regulators awarded Penn a temporary license last week after an extensive vetting of Portnoy's social media presence. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
0: The Massachusetts Republican Party appears to be in financial trouble following major defeat in the November election. As of last month, the state GOP owed at least $86,000 to two vendors for election-related services. One of those vendors is threatening to take the party to court if the bill isn't paid soon. WBUR reached out to the party for comment but has not heard back. It's 8.07.
13: WBUR supporters include Paychex. The Paychex team of professionals and compliance specialists work to help businesses automate all HR functions into one platform so that they can instead focus on their business and their employees.
0: The Celtics are back on the court tonight as they host the New Orleans Pelicans. Partly sunny today and in the mid-30s, mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be around 30. Cloudy to start tomorrow with snow possible in the early morning, then rain as temperatures rise into the 40s. Rainy and warmer on Friday. It's 23 degrees in Boston at 8.08.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California.
15: And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. In Ukraine, Russia and mercenaries aligned with the Kremlin have made small advances in recent days. Officials say intense fighting is continuing in and around the eastern city of Bakhmut.
14: Those advances could lead to Bakhmut becoming encircled. It would be a rare military victory for Russia, however small. To understand what
15: this means for the ongoing war in Ukraine, we turn to NPR's Alyssa Nadworny, who's in Kyiv. Morning, Alyssa. Good morning. So, a rare Russian success. How big of a deal is this?
10: Yeah, so we're actually talking about a small settlement in the eastern part of Ukraine in the Donbass. The Mm -hmm. Wagner Group, a mercenary force run by a friend of Vladimir Putin, has been fighting to take this area since summer. So there is conflicting word on who controls this village of Solodar, uh, known for its salt mine. Ukraine's defense ministry says fighting is still happening. The leader of Wagner has been posting to Telegram with tempered gains, mm-hmm. capturing Solodar. That would allow Russia to potentially envelop Bakhmut. These minor tactical advances, like we're talking block by block gains by Russia, they're significant mostly because. Russia has struggled to make any operational gains. So they're standing out because they're so rare, but it doesn't mean it's a Russian turning point. Carolina Hurd is a Russia analyst at the Institute for the Study of War, and she says the real significance is the cost of this advance for Russia.
21: The Ukrainians have very, very successfully pinned Russian forces up against Soledad and Bakhmut for six months and use this to basically just continue pulling Russian troops, Russian equipment to this area and basically burning through it.
10: Kurd made clear that the Russian capture of Solidar, it doesn't guarantee that Bakhmut will be encircled. Okay, Elizabeth, help us understand
15: the significance of Bakhmut, like why does Russia want this area so badly?
10: Yeah, so, well, there is a highway system that runs through Bakhmut, which is helpful for Ukrainian communication, moving troops. President Zelensky recently visited Bakhmut just before his trip to the US Congress. And hold Bakhmut has kind of become this rallying cry here in Ukraine. The fighting there, Zelensky said, has brought Ukraine additional time and military power. I talked with Ole Ezdanov, a Ukrainian military expert here. He says for Russia and the Wagner Group, winning here sends a strong message home. For Russia, he says, there's no real military significance to Bakhmut. Rather, it's a political one, a message that Putin and the Wagner group can bring back to the Russian people.
15: Okay, I'm going to take a turn for a second. The U.S. says it's going to start training Ukrainian soldiers in the United States. How could that help Ukraine?
10: Well, it's gonna help defend against Russian air attacks, which have happened frequently throughout the Greece. So starting as early as next week, about a hundred Ukrainian troops will come to a military base in Oklahoma to get trained on the Patriot missile defense system. So this is an air defense weapon that Ukrainians have been asking for for quite some time. The training is gonna happen at Fort Sill and it's expected to last several months according to the Pentagon. So that's defending the air. For the ground fight, there are more weapons heading to Ukraine, among them armored vehicles from Germany, France, and the US. And there's hope that this wave of weapons from Europe will keep growing, perhaps more from the UK, others like tanks, fighter jets, and longer range missiles.
15: And BR's Alyssa Nadworny in Kyiv. Thanks, Alyssa, and stay safe.
10: Thanks, Leila. <laughs>
14: Authorities in Brazil have ordered the arrest of two security officials accused of colluding with rioters who attacked government buildings in the capital. Over the weekend, thousands of supporters of former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro vandalized the Congress, Supreme Court and presidential offices in Brasilia. They were spurred by false claims from the former president that his re-election loss was due to fraud. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports.
29: Brazil's newly inaugurated president, Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, didn't mince words. Speaking to a group of governors at his heavily damaged presidential offices, he said keeping the government safe last Sunday was the job of the state police, and they failed to do so.
30: A polícia de Brasília negligenciou. A inteligência de Brasília negligenciou.
29: The police in Brasilia was negligent. The Brasilia police's intelligence was also negligent, said a visibly angry Lula. He went on to accuse state officers of even colluding with the demonstrators. More than a thousand people have been detained for participating in the attacks on Brazil's Supreme Court, Congress and presidential offices. Yesterday, hundreds were released for humanitarian reasons, while hundreds more were formally charged. Yesterday, the head of security in Brasilia was ordered arrested. Anderson Torres, a Bolsonaro ally, had already been fired right after the riots. The newly appointed head of security, Ricardo Capelli, says Torres deliberately sabotaged Brasilia's police
5: force.
29: He told CNN Brazil that just after days on the job, Torres gutted the leadership and then quickly went on vacation to the U.S. In a tweet, Torres denied any wrongdoing. He called the accusations of collusion absurd. Authorities say they've identified businessmen from around the country who helped finance the attacks, specifically chartering buses to bring rioters into Brasilia. At least 80 buses arrived in the capital last weekend packed with Bolsonaro supporters. Natalia Viana is an investigative journalist who monitors social media and the right wing in Brazil. She says rioters openly discussed traveling en masse to the capital. State officials had to have seen the communications, she says. It is impossible that they did not know. And this is why we're not talking only about omission or incompetence. This is negligence and it may be criminal. They may have concurred on the acts that happened. She says organizers used coded messages urging people to come to Selma's party in the capital, a play on words for a military call to action, and that they were hoping five corns would attend. The word for corn in Portuguese is similar to the word for millions. Meanwhile, at the vandalized buildings, workers continue trying to clean up the damage. At the presidential offices, nearly every first floor window of this glass encased building was smashed. High pressure water guns are used to pry shards out of the peripheral stone pathways. President Lula's spokesperson, Jose Crispiniano, scoffs at the notion that the rioters dared to drape themselves in the flag and call themselves patriots.
7: It was very irrational and very misguided in the sense that they were destroying Brazilian
29: history and Brazilian symbols. One treasure, a mid-20th century desk used by the first president to work in Brasilia, was tossed out a third-story window. The damage caused by the rioters is still being tallied. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Brasilia. The images from
15: Brasilia seem to mirror the January attacks on the U.S. Capitol. Our co-host A. Martinez spoke with NPR's Shannon Bond about another similarity.
27: Well, it seems that many of the protesters in Brasilia were motivated by calls to action online, specifically posts in Telegram and WhatsApp groups. And, you know, both of those are messaging apps that are really popular in Brazil. You know, in many cases, they were organizing basically in plain sight. There were offers of free transportation by bus, free food. Now, some of these posts did use coded language about a party in to urge people to come to Brasilia. That was an, apparently an attempt to avoid being caught by the social networks, which have been on alert in Brazil. And then as some of these folks stormed the government buildings, this was all being live streamed on YouTube. There were photos and videos being shared to Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and many people were praising the rioters.
28: Well, so yeah, that sounds very similar to the scene in Washington a couple of years ago. So I mean, when you consider that given what you said, social networks were on alert in Brazil, um, how was this able to happen?
27: Well, Bolsonaro and his supporters have been seeding the ground with these claims of election fraud even before he lost the presidential election back in October. And those claims were amplified, you know, not just by Brazilian influencers on the right, but also American allies like Steve Bannon, the former Trump White House advisor. On Sunday, he was cheering on the rioters as freedom fighters. And all of this spread widely online over many months, despite many of these platforms' claims they were monitoring the situation. I spoke with Jory Craig, She studies elections and online platforms at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and she says it's a matter of priorities for these companies. There is a lot that they are doing for English language markets that they just simply don't invest in in other markets. And then she says when these companies do respond to problems, it's typically because of external pressure, you know, bad PR. And fundamentally, that does not address the ways their products can be used to amplify these kinds of anti-democratic movements. Another thing I'll say is at the same time, Brazil does have pretty aggressive regulations about online speech. The government has the power to compel platforms to take down content, to ban accounts. But that didn't stop this from happening either.
28: And then this comes at uh, a time when Facebook's parent company, Meta, is about to announce whether it's going to restore former President Donald Trump's account that it banned after January 6th. I mean, could the events that happened in Brazil affect that decision?
27: Well, the short answer is we don't know yet. Um, Trump's two-year ban was up on Saturday, just the day before this all unfolded in Brazil. Meta says in making this decision it's considering the level of risk. It's basically trying to decide is it safe to let Trump back on Facebook and Instagram? Now clearly the situation here in the US is different now than it was in 2021. You know, but part of that is that, you know, the election denial movement that Trump, you know, really kind of has come to symbolize has hardened. It's become part of mainstream American politics. And then when you look around the world, you have far-right movements, including in Brazil, which are cross-pollinating. They're encouraging each other. They're taking inspiration from one another. And so the question is, is that broader question of public safety risk something Meta is considering?
28: That's NPR's Shannon Bond. Shannon, thanks.
27: Thanks so much.
15: This is NPR
0: News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, following the shooting of a teacher allegedly by a six-year-old in Newport News, Virginia, questions are being raised about the legal representation for children in criminal cases. It's 819. Turn your
10: old car
0: into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars.
10: We're
4: funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide.
20: More at BassBerry.com. Planet Earth. As of late last year, human population, 8 billion. And by the end of the century, it's expected to top 10 billion.
21: For me... Nine and then 10 billion is not going to very much change my life, but there are places in the world, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, another billion will make people's lives potentially worse.
20: That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Take WBUR with you on your drive to work each morning, because chances are you're going to have time. A new report by the transition the transportation research firm Intenrix finds the average Boston-area driver loses 134 hours a year stuck in congestion. That makes us the second-worst in the country, behind only Chicago, and fourth-worst in the world. One positive note, the amount of time stuck behind the wheel here is actually down 10% from before the pandemic. A high of only 36 today under partly sunny skies. Cloudy tonight with a low of 30. Tomorrow, a good chance of snow in the early morning, then rain, followed by clouds. The high will be near 42. Right now, it's 24 degrees in Boston at 821.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone, ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the john d and katherine t macarthur foundation supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just verdant and peaceful world more information is at macfound.org this is npr
15: this is morning edition from npr news i'm leila falden
14: and i'm dwayne brown in newport news virginia authorities are still trying to figure out how a six-year-old could get his hands on a gun say the child brought his mother's gun to school in his backpack and shot his teacher in front of at least 16 other children who were in the classroom at the time she's recovering from wounds in her hand and chest but the incident has drawn attention to what's become a perennial tragedy in american schools
30: the number of victims is tremendous then that plays to the larger issue of our country about the frequency of school shootings and access to weapons day in and day out. Some schools, some places dealing with this and creating waves and waves and waves of victims.
14: That's Renee Sandler, an attorney who's familiar with navigating complex cases at the intersection of criminal and family law. Our co-host, A. Martinez, spoke with Sandler about how a child who commits an act of violence like this can avoid being defined by it later in life.
30: We have to look at this case from a service standpoint, as well as a legal standpoint. We have to identify the issues in the home. We have to protect a child's constitutional rights, as well as, uh, you know, any potential criminal or other circumstances, just as you would an adult.
28: When you say from a service standpoint, what does that mean to you?
30: It means child welfare, child protective services. Typically what's needed is a therapeutic evaluation. This child may have learning issues, may have uh, mental health issues. There may be substance use in the home. There may be domestic violence in the home. We don't know the exposure of this child to other stressors or other things. And those will be identified by a companion investigation of a criminal case.
28: Okay, so it goes beyond like maybe what we would think of a defense attorney would be just trying to get their client off of the charges that are being levied against them.
30: Right. At six years old or at an age really under the age of 11, you are looking at what the needs of this child and this family are. There may also be a companion actual prosecution of a child that young or a family member for allowing or not securing access to a firearm. But first and foremost are what services are needed for this child.
28: At six years old, do they even have an understanding of what they've done?
30: In my experience of 30 years, a child that young has the inability to form certain mens rea or a certain mindset for specific intent and certainly cannot understand the nature of all the intricacies of a proceeding against him or her and can't meaningfully assist in his or her defense. So in strict terms, absolutely not.
28: When it comes to how the child accesses a weapon, how does a parent explain that their child somehow got their hands on a firearm?
30: I think it's a criminal investigation, just like any criminal case who lives in the home. Uh, In this case, for example, the gun was, um, by all reports, legally purchased, but it doesn't stop there. The gun was loaded, and certain laws in certain states require that a gun cannot be contained with its ammunition. In other words, it has to be separated. So it's education in the home, uh, but a criminal investigation into every aspect of that home and where that gun originated, how it got there, how long it'd been there, and who had access to the whereabouts of where it was stored
28: at what age though are children held accountable or prosecuted even for their crimes
30: one of the difficulties with uh, young children being charged or being involved in a criminal system is that this is very state law driven the overwhelming uh, majority of states have no minimum age for prosecuting children where others have the age of 7 or 8 10 11 12 or 13 Uh, But 14 years old is the most common minimum age of criminal responsibility internationally.
28: So in a situation like this, at what point would there even be a discussion of the child being put back in the home with their parents?
30: So children can be removed from their home in the circumstances we have discussed and oftentimes are until such time as the child welfare system, the state's attorney's office, you know, the prosecutors, county attorneys, judge are satisfied that any dangers or any threats or any anything in that regard that would either be abusive or neglectful to the child, any of those things have been removed. This child once returned and once it's deemed safe for him to return, he will still be supervised and monitored going forward to make sure that everyone is doing their role and their part here.
28: And how can such a young child be made whole after something like this?
30: A lot of therapeutic interventions and in all likelihood that child will not return to that school for a number of reasons, but a lot of work, a lot of effort and a a lot of investment in this child and in this family by social service agencies and the family itself. Have you
28: been or seen cases where somehow things get back toward a path where everyone can heal up? I mean it, it just sounds like this is something that would take years, decades even. But is there have you ever seen anything in practice that makes things work again the way the way they should?
30: I have been involved in a case where an 8-year-old obtained a gun from his home, shot a 7-year-old The gun was in his backpack. The father was charged with allowing access, if you will, by not properly securing an armed weapon, you know, a uh, fully loaded weapon. That family healed. That family, Mm. the siblings, the parents, put in a tremendous amount of work and they healed and they're doing well and everyone grew up and had productive, positive lives. So it is possible then. It seems like that mountain is so high. That mountain is high right now. We are too early in the traumatic event for everyone involved. There are uh, multiple levels of investigations that are taking place, and we need to respect those investigations and uh, see where they lead in the future for this family, this child, the teacher, and everyone else. That's Renee Sandler, an attorney based in Maryland. Renee, thank you very much. Thank you.
14: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, at least 17 people have been killed by storms that caused flooding and mudslides in California. And if rising costs have you putting more expenses on a credit card, we have tips on how to manage your debt amid high interest rates. It's 829 There's a lot of news this morning, including an FAA computer problem that's grounding some flights for at least the next half hour. If you're headed out the door, remember, you can keep listening for updates on the WBUR mobile app.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The FAA says flights have resumed departing at some airports across the U.S. following a system outage that brought a halt to departures. The outage led to delays for hundreds of flights. It's unclear when flight schedules will be back to normal. At the White House, President Biden's press secretary said at this point there's no evidence a cyber attack was responsible. President Biden says he was surprised to learn classified documents were found at an office he once used in Washington. The president says he's been cooperating fully since the records were found at the Penn Biden Center in early November. Doctors say they discovered a small lesion above First Lady Jill Biden's right eye. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more. The president's doctor, Kevin O'Connor, said the lesion was discovered during a routine cancer screening. It's small, but Dr. O'Connor said in a statement that doctors recommended that it be removed out of an abundance of caution. The First Lady will have the tissue further examined at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Removing it is done with an outpatient procedure known as MOS surgery, which involves cutting away thin layers of skin. Each layer is then studied for signs of cancer. Doctors say the goal is to remove all the skin cancer without hurting the healthy skin around it. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. This is NPR News.
0: From WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. The number of flights delayed at Logan Airport by the FAA computer glitch is growing quickly. The website FlightAware says more than 130 flights in and out of Boston are now delayed. 14 more have been canceled. Massport is asking passengers flying today to check in with their airline before heading to the airport. A new study from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston finds Black and Hispanic people who are dying of cancer are less likely to be prescribed opioids than their white counterparts. Opioids are considered among the most effective treatments for cancer pain. Study author Alexi Wright says there's no rule for what drugs a doctor should prescribe a dying person, but any racial disparity is troubling it really made
27: us wonder how much individual or systemic racism is driving this
0: difference in access to pain Federal guidance aimed at restricting the overall rate at which opioids are prescribed specifically exempts cancer patients. The Massachusetts Teachers Association is renewing calls to abolish the state's standardized testing requirement. That is the MCAS exam. Massachusetts is just one of eight states to require students to pass an exam in order to graduate. The MTA calls the requirement destructive. It argues teachers should spend their time on curriculum instead of preparing students for tests. The city of Lowell is looking into the possibility of buying portable snowmaking equipment. It would be used to create snow for wintertime recreational activities. City Councilor Corey Robinson says that'll benefit people living in the city who can't afford ski trips to the mountains. He wants to see if the city can use federal pandemic relief money, also called ARPA funds.
7: The use of ARPA
14: funding for these kind of projects is a good way to kind of balance it. Yes, we have higher, way higher priorities, but I also think the residents deserve to see some improvements
13: in quality of life issues as well.
0: Robinson says the idea is part of a larger conversation about how to improve life in Lowell. It's 833.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org.
0: The Celtics will try to extend their three-game winning streak tonight. They'll play the New Orleans Pelicans at the Garden. The Red Sox aren't sure if shortstop Trevor Story will be able to play at all this year. The 30-year-old underwent elbow surgery earlier this week. In your forecast, partly cloudy today with temperatures rising to the mid-30s. It'll still be cloudy tonight as those fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, snow until about mid-morning, then rain, followed by clouds, will top out in the low 40s. It's 24 degrees in Boston at 834.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu ambitioncantwait can't wait. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at ooma.com slash NPR.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California.
12: And I'm Leila
15: Fadel in Washington, D.C. In California, powerful storms have killed at least 17 people and forced tens of thousands to flee their homes.
14: And more torrential rain is on the way. Here's California Governor Gavin Newsom. We're
13: not out of the woods. We expect these storms to continue at least through the 18th of this month. We expect a minimum three more of these atmospheric rivers.
15: NPR's Nathan Rott is in one of the affected areas in Ventura County, northwest of Los Angeles. He joins us now. Good morning, Nate. Hey, good morning, Layla. So what's the situation where you are?
24: All right, so some parts of this county got more than 18 inches of rain over two days, just to give you a little perspective here. So there's still some localized flooding, road closures. But generally speaking, Ventura County is doing better than a lot of places along the California coast. The Ventura River, which cuts along the west end of town, is down significantly compared to where it was. But even still, Layla, this is a river where it meets the coast that you can usually kind of roll up your pants, walk, or even jump across. And Mm. yesterday when I went down there, it was at least 50 yards wide and who knows how deep because it looked like chocolate milk that you definitely wouldn't want to drink.
15: Oh, man. So more than a dozen people had to be rescued from that river, right?
24: Yeah, that's right. There was a lot of coverage about it here. I actually talked to some of those folks. They are unhoused and usually live in a little tent encampment down by the river. They're now camped out under a nearby overpass. Uh, One of the guys, Frankie, who didn't want to give his last name because some of his family don't know that he's uh, currently homeless, said his brother actually woke him up in his tent when the flooding started. And I'll let him tell you the rest.
13: I looked outside and it was already ankle deep all around the tent. And probably about 20 minutes, it was up to our waist, and by the time they shot a ladder over the bridge down to us, we were hanging on to uh, tree stumps, you know, uh, tree foliage, you know, coming out of the ground and stuff like that. We were just seven of us. And we got all climbed up on the ladder and rescued.
24: And he said it was probably one of the scariest moments of his life.
15: Sounds terrifying. How's the rest of the state doing with
26: all of this water?
24: It really depends on the location. There's been widespread flooding along some parts of the coast. There were some levee failures inland. Uh, San Francisco was seeing pea-sized hail for a while yesterday, and this whole storm system isn't over, as we heard from the governor. Mike Anderson, the state climatologist, said in a press conference yesterday there's still uncertainty about how severe the upcoming storms later this week and weekend will be. Uh, Let's take a listen
2: challenge now that we're getting to is that the rivers are not receding as much as they were earlier due to how much rain has fallen and the volume of water in the system.
24: So any new water coming from these uh, upcoming atmospheric rivers won't have as many places to go, which of course could lead to even more flooding.
15: So let's talk about climate change and the role it's playing in these storms.
24: Yeah, so look, it's still too early for any attribution signs to have been done, which is basically how we'd be able to definitively say that, yes, climate change has played a role in these storms. The link between climate change and atmospheric rivers, which are normal phenomena here in California and in many parts of the world, that is still not totally clear. What we can say, though, is that warmer air holds more moisture. And that's what's been fueling some of these really destructive hurricanes we've experienced in the southeast. And so we do know the world's air is warmer because of human actions. So these kinds of major precipitation events are expected to happen more frequently into the future.
15: NPR's Nathan Rott in Ventura, California. Thank you so much.
24: Yeah, thank you,
14: Layla. The cost of living is climbing fast, and a growing number of Americans are leaning on credit cards to make ends meet. The average cardholder carries more than $5,000 in credit card debt, and as interest rates keep climbing, that debt is casting a longer shadow over many families' finances. NPR's Scott Horsley is with us now. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Hey, not so long ago, I remember we learned that a lot of folks were actually paying down their credit card balances. What happened? What turned it around?
18: You're right. We actually saw a pretty steep drop in credit card debt early in the pandemic, back when people couldn't spend much money going out or traveling. And when the federal government was putting those big relief payments into people's bank accounts, But that has turned around, and credit card debt is now climbing again to near record levels. Mm -hmm. Some of that, of course, is being driven by inflation. Uh, Mel Murphy in Spokane probably speaks for a lot of people. She was working last year as a part-time custodian, and her rent was gobbling up about two-thirds of her paycheck. So there just wasn't a lot left over for any unexpected expense.
12: So every time my minivan all of a sudden needed $300 worth of work,
4: or I had an elderly pet cat. And every time he needed emergency surgery at the vet, it went on the credit cards.
18: Now, Murphy's been trying hard to pay down her credit card debt. But a survey out this week from Bankrate finds that a growing number of card users, nearly half, are now carrying debt over from month to month. And that debt is getting more and more expensive. That's a
14: real reality check. How much, uh, Scott, do these uh, interest rates from the Fed actually play into that part?
18: Yeah, the interest rate on credit cards usually tracks pretty closely with what the Federal Reserve does. And Mm -hmm. as we know, the Fed has been raising rates aggressively over the last year as it tries to crack down on inflation. Every time the Fed boosts its benchmark rate by half a point or three-quarters of a point, credit card rates ratchet up as well. And if you carry a balance for a while, that higher interest rate can add hundreds or even thousands of dollars in additional interest costs although Bankrate's Ted Rossman says you might not know that just from looking at your monthly credit card bill.
7: Your minimum
28: payment might only change by a few bucks a month, but the problem is when you drag it out,
11: that's where you really feel it.
18: The average interest rate on credit cards is now nearly 20%. That's up from just over 16% at the beginning of the last year. And when Bankrate did a survey last month, they found more than 4 in 10 credit card holders don't even know what their interest rate is.
14: So, Scott, what's, what's the best advice here for cardholders like you and me and those listening to cut costs.
18: Well, of course, the best thing to do if you're carrying credit card debt is pay it off as quickly as you can. But if you have to carry a debt, Rossman says, you should definitely try to minimize the interest expense. Uh, Maybe transfer your balance to a zero interest card if you can, or possibly a lower cost personal loan. And Rossman says, don't be swayed by cash back offers on pricey credit cards if you're carrying a balance
28: because it doesn't make sense to pay 20% interest just to get one or two or even 5% in cash back or airline miles. I really think if you have debt, no shame, a lot of people do, but you've got to put that interest rate first and then worry about rewards later on once you paid it off.
18: Now, the good news is credit card delinquency rates are still pretty low, but they are expected to climb. And that's just another measure of the hardship that many people are feeling right now from the one-two punch of rising prices and rising interest rates. All right. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome.
14: Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, Thousands of people joined protests against China's strict COVID controls. Now many of those zero COVID rules are gone, but people who demonstrated against them are being arrested. Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up on Morning Edition, a year after a scandal over racial representation, the Golden Globes returned last night with a host who quickly, directly address the controversy. In your forecast, a mix of sun and clouds today with temperatures rising to the mid-30s, cloudy in the night falling to around 30. In the early hours of tomorrow morning, snow is possible, followed by rain as temperatures rise to the low forties. In the evening, we may see fog and high winds. Right now it's 24 degrees in Boston at 843.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases career opportunities at vrtx.com.
0: Now in business news, Rhode Island-based CVS is reportedly considering the acquisition of a Chicago healthcare company. Oak Street Health operates more than 150 care centers for Medicare recipients across the U.S. Bloomberg reports the deal is valued at more than $10 billion. Two Massachusetts companies are teaming up on a program aimed at improving clean energy in the state. Greentown Labs and Vineyard Wind say the six-month program will give startups funding to develop technology that improves the efficiency of offshore wind turbines. The Mad River Glen Ski Resort in Vermont is open on a limited basis today, but lack of snow could force it to temporarily shut down next week. The resort tells the Boston Globe it needs somewhere between 6 to 10 inches of snow to avoid a shutdown. Snow is in the forecast for the area tomorrow, but the resort says only time will tell if there's enough on the ground to justify running its lifts. It's 844. <music>
12: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
15: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil.
14: And I'm Dwayne Brown. After two years of controversy, the Golden Globe ceremony was back on television last night and Mandalit Del Delbarco was there on the red carpet and backstage.
23: This year's Golden Globes MC, Gerard Carmichael, wasted no time in addressing the elephant in the room.
14: I'm here because I'm black.
23: (laughs) In his opening monologue, the comedian tore into the ceremony's host organization, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which had been called out for questionable practices and a lack of diversity.
14: The Golden Globe Awards did not air last year because the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which I, I won't say they were a racist organization, but they didn't have a single black member until George Floyd died.
23: Last year, NBC ditched the broadcast, and many stars, studios, and publicists boycotted the ceremony in protest. Tom Cruise returned his Golden Globe Awards. Carmichael even joked about that. Since then, the journalist group has changed its bylaws, added a new code of conduct, and added more diverse members from around the world. It's even vowed to become more professional and to rebrand itself. On the red carpet, nominee Cheryl Lee Ralph said she did have second thoughts about attending. But at the same time, I am very happy that the Hollywood foreign press is opening up its heart It's minds, it's doors to membership to others. Everybody deserves
4: respect.
23: During the ceremony, some of the winners were no-shows. Kate Blanchett, Zendaya, Amanda Seyfried, Kevin Costner. But there were some celebrities at the Beverly Hilton Ballroom, like Brad Pitt and Jenna Ortega. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky even made a cameo in a video. Once again, Golden Globe's guests got buzzed on champagne, and there were a few memorable speeches. For example, director Steven Spielberg won two awards for his film The Fablemans, which was based on his childhood.
7: I've been hiding from this story since I was 17 years old. I told this story in parts and parcels all through my career. E.T. has a lot to do with this story. The Close Encounters has a lot to do with the story. But I never had the courage... To hit this story head on the
23: Fablemans was crowned best motion picture drama among the biggest winners last night were the film The Banshees of Inohirrin, which won three golden Globes and Quinta Brunson's TV series Abbott Elementary picked up three awards. <laughs> The song Natu Natu from the Indian film RRR beat out rivals Rihanna and Taylor Swift for this year's best original song. Austin Butler put on his Elvis Presley voice to pick up his award. Michelle Yeoh threatened to beat up the pianist as music tried to get her to wrap up her acceptance speech. And supporting actress winner Jennifer Coolidge from the show White Lotus fumbled through her thank yous with more than one bleeped expletive.
22: This is... A fun night. Thank you. Thank
23: you. Hollywood may be ready to give the Golden Globes a comeback, but it hasn't yet forgotten what happened last year at the Academy Awards. In accepting the Cecil B. DeMille Award, comedian Eddie Murphy gave this advice to aspiring Hollywood talent
14: Pay your taxes, mind your business,
24: and keep Will Smith's wife's name
23: out your f- mouth. The infamous Oscars slap is sure to come up again and again during Hollywood's award season, which has only just begun. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown.
0: And I'm Layla Falden. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the port of Los Angeles has been the busiest in the U.S. for decades. Now it's seeing a slowdown in business. The Marketplace Morning Report explains why. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now. And Scott Tong is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. I bet that includes the problem with the FAA computer system. There are now 164 flights delayed at Logan. Am I right, Scott?
9: You are right Rupa, we will have midday an update on the FAA computer glitch and what it's meaning for flight delays in the country. Uh, the Salt Lake is on the verge of collapse. It's already lost 73% of its water, which has been diverted for households, household use and for farming. We're going to look at the science of whether it's inhabitable in the future and what dramatic measures could restore the lake. And from the here and now desk of practical things, what fashion choices exist for normal-sized people? We'll have that. How to jump back into reading and what to read, how to find stuff to read? We'll have that. And given the health risks of gas stoves... What alternatives might you want to consider? Well, we'll have that, too. Also, updates on Brazil and the Golden Globes that we just heard about. Mm -hmm. Have a good day.
0: Thanks, Scott. You, too. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource, a proud
12: sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at
17: Eversource.com. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Anglin Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand.
0: Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Partly sunny and mid-30s today, cloudy and low 30s tonight. Right now it's 24 degrees in Boston at 851.
2: What well, we can learn counting boats in and out of one of America's biggest ports.
4: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychecks, where HR, insurance, benefits,
30: and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychecks can help make HR simple for businesses and employees.
2: I'm David Brancaccio. First, we're tracking a widespread problem for air traffic this morning after stopping all domestic flight departures for a stretch just now in America. The FAA says. Some departures are resuming out of Newark, New Jersey and Atlanta. The FAA hopes to have all departures back up and running soon, but once backed up, it can take schedule some time to normalize. It's trying to restore a system that notifies pilots and special about special conditions or hazards at airports. For instance, if a runway is closed for construction or lights are out, this is the notice-to-air missions system across U.S. airspace. There's been a campaign to overhaul this system, where important warnings sometimes get lost in a dense thicket of less important information. A South Korean solar panel maker is building a new manufacturing complex in Georgia. Hanwha Q Cells made the announcement earlier today. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer reports.
12: The new Georgia facility is designed to move some of the Q-cell supply chain to the U.S. The company says the new complex will eventually manufacture the components of solar panels as well as complete units. Hanwha Q-cells says it's making the investment in response to the Inflation Reduction Act. The law includes incentives like tax credits for renewable energy. The complex in Cartersville, Georgia, is expected to create 2,500 jobs with production starting next year. There is a wrinkle, though where to find all those workers. The unemployment rate is at just 3.5%. Some renewable energy companies are raising pay and benefits to attract scarce workers. Others are trying to increase efficiency and use fewer employees. And some companies are teaming up with prisons to train people who are incarcerated and hire them once they're released. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace.
2: One of the biggest drags on the Japanese economy are the cheapo wages employers pay there. The average wage in Japan is just $39,700 compared to 51000 a year on average in the rest of the industrialized world, about 54 k average in the U.S. Now the parent company of Uniqlo, Asia's largest clothes retailer, says it'll increase pay by up to 40% in its home market of Japan. The BBC's Mariko Oi is covering this.
1: It's hugely significant and really exciting uh, personally because I've been covering Japan's economy for almost two decades now. And basically, salaries haven't gone up since the early 1990s. And that's something that uh, Fumio Kishida, the country's prime minister, has been wanting to change. Uniqlo's uh, operator, Fast Retailing, just announced that it's going to raise it by as much as 40%, basically to match the Japanese employee's salaries with the rest of the world. And, you know, Hopefully, that would encourage other companies to do the same, because otherwise the country has been facing its first proper inflation in decades. And because wages haven't been catching up, people really have been hit hard by it.
2: The BBC's Mariko Oy. Markets, Dow S&P and Nasdaq futures are up in the two three tenths of a percent range.
30: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com.
2: Los Angeles has had the busiest port in the U.S. for decades, but in the last months of 2022, traffic slowed, and the port of L.A. fell to second busiest behind the port of New York and New Jersey. This is due in part to concern about firms trying to get their cargo moved about given ongoing labor negotiations between shipping companies and dock workers. Let's take today's economic pulse by checking back in with Gene Siroka, executive director of the Port of Los Angeles. Mr. Siroka, welcome back.
25: Great to be with you, David.
2: How's it going with volume over there? Last we talked, it was thunderingly
25: busy, a little less busy, I think, as the year wore on it's been fairly light since august of last year david we had an earlier than normal peak season with june and july setting all-time records and then we began to see the shift of cargo away from our ports on the west coast to the east and gulf coast many importers and exporters have been telling me for some time they're very concerned about protracted longshore labor negotiations and any type of work disruption. Of course, that hasn't happened and we don't believe it will. So you've seen business shift to other ports? The shift has happened. We're down about 20% from August through the end of the year in 2022. But the productivity of the workforce, the longshore members that are out there moving all this cargo, is at an all-time high per vessel so we haven't seen any work disruption and both sides from the employers association to the dock workers groups have committed to continuing the good work of moving america's trade while the officers and executives are at the table negotiating their next contract
2: now you're not in the middle of the negotiations clearly you're affected by them but uh you have a sense that maybe those negotiations are
25: approaching an end game From a historical perspective, we're at the outer reaches or the point where it usually sees conclusion. I'd like to see this agreement completed here in the first quarter again. From what we've seen in the past on time and distance, it seems right to get these final pieces put together, but it's still a lot of hard work for the negotiators.
2: And as you point out, the labor negotiations are part of this, but also it was 2022, a crazy year in your business. You had supply chain backlogs, and then some of the backlogs were worked through, and you, you saw that rhythm at your port.
25: I've had folks in charge of transportation, supply chain import-export managers telling me they just couldn't risk Another year of telling their superiors they got caught up in the backlogs at the Southern California ports. Maybe they overcorrected, but they had to do something. Sitting and doing nothing was not an answer. We've tried to give every reassurance. And before the holidays, I was crisscrossing the nation on a whistle-stop tour to try to share the ground truth with manufacturers, retailers, exporters alike on how productivity looks, and our gateway is open for business. You actually went door-to-door over there, huh? absolutely east coast midwest i was in detroit visiting with our automotive friends the tier one and tiered suppliers everyone in my rolodex was on the list to go out and continue to share what we're doing out here and make sure they have an understanding the kpis all the data that we look at to show that this gateway here with latent capacity now can help pick up the slack from other areas
2: all right always good to talk to gene Siroca, executive director of the port of los angeles Thank you so much. Thank you, David. And I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll have partly cloudy skies today in the mid-30s. Still cloudy tonight in the low 30s. We might get a little snow tomorrow morning. That'll turn to rain as temperatures rise to the low 40s. Then Thursday evening, a chance of fog and high winds. The fog and wind may continue on to Friday. And in the early morning, we'll probably see some rain. It'll be in the 50s. Right now it's 24 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. And Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story of the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family, starts January 21st, MRT.org.
20: planet Earth. As of late last year, human population, 8 billion. And by the end of the century, it's expected to top 10 billion.
21: For me, 9 and then 10 billion is not going to very much change my life. But there are places in the world, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, another billion will make people's lives potentially
20: worse. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
10: I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.